If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant, one of the teaching pastors here, and we're glad that you came to the late service today, and uh, hopefully you'll find it very, very beneficial. A couple of quick announcements as we get started. Uh, first of all, we have an opportunity. The Bellingham School District actually contacted our church and said that they needed help with a project. Now, that's kind of new for us, for them to call us and say, hey, we need your help. And so we are doing a, a, it's a book coding project. Basically, they have a whole bunch of textbooks. They need them all to be coded before they put them into circulation. So if you're available Tuesday or Thursday afternoon, you can go to the connection point and become part of that volunteer effort. We'd love for you to get involved with that as well. So tomorrow night, Monday night, is Trunk or Treat, which is one of the largest outreaches that we have here. And I want to welcome you to Guilt and Manipulation Sunday, okay? So here's the deal. We got enough trunks. We got enough volunteers. What we don't have enough of is candy. So here's the deal. Here comes the guilt and manipulation. If you love Jesus, (laughs) just subtle enough for you, you will go to Walmart buy a bag of sugar, bring it back here so we can give it away. Okay. Is that clear enough for everybody? So we're about 70 somewhere in there percent of the way there. And we need to kind of go over the top because here's what happens. If you promise kids candy and they show up here and there's not enough candy here, this is what's going to happen. They will declare anarchy. They are going to rebel. They're going to burn the building to the ground. All right. And we don't want the children to overthrow the church. And so if you could help us out with that, that would be wonderful. We'd certainly appreciate that. So because we've changed some things around, people are still working their way in here. Just be kind of gracious as, uh, as, they're, as they're finding seats. It's probably going to happen here at least for the first couple of minutes as we get started. One week ago, I was preparing to uh, leave on vacation. And my only thought as I was plowing through this huge to-do list was, you know, the end is near, right? It's almost here. I'm almost free. I can almost throw my phone in the ocean as I'm leaving. I mean, people are finally going to leave me around. And there was kind of this anticipation. I was excited about the fact that the end was almost here. And then I got to go away for a week with my bride of 23 years. And we get to the last morning and it's kind of like, the end is near, you know? My hope and prayer is that as we walk through what we're going to talk about today, is that, is that we would really buy into the fact and understand that everything we're talking about is supposed to build anticipation. That you don't walk out of here today kind of looking at what we talk about and go, that's really kind of a downer. Like I'm really not that excited about what's coming. This is in order to build us up in the right direction. I'm telling you, there's so many exciting things going on and exciting things coming. It's really exciting. In fact, we never know which service we're actually going to put on the internet every single week. So I've been saying this in every service because I want to make sure that you guys get an opportunity to say hi to somebody. So there is a little house church in Budapest, Hungary, okay? The average age in the church is 19 years old. Their pastor's name is Yosef. He's only been saved for about four months, and he's the pastor, okay? And every week on Sunday morning, they get together, they turn on the computer, they stream the message from last week, and so I want to say hello to Christ the King Church, Budapest, Hungary, because they're going to be watching this in about seven days, and so I'm going to ask you guys to welcome them, put your hands together, and let's welcome Hungary on board with us. It's good to have you guys. That's awesome. All right, I need you to grab the little piece of paper in your program and pull it out there. It looks like an outline, kind of a deal. I made a promise to you at the beginning of the series that we were not going to use these big eschatological charts with scary pictures of seven-headed beasts and four horsemen of the apocalypse, okay? I'm not a man, or I am a man of my word, and so we're not going to use a big chart. We're going to use a little one, okay? 
All right, so I need you to pull this out because we're actually going to follow this through. Last week, Pastor Derek covered another portion of Matthew 24, Matthew chapter 25, and he addressed the passion of Jesus in the followers of God being watchful and ready and doing specifically what God had asked us to do as the end of the world comes to a close and gets closer and closer. All right, before we go ahead, we actually have to go backwards a little bit. So I'm going to ask you to grab your chart. We're going to start on the left side. We're going to work our way across to the right side, and I'm just going to describe some things to you, okay? So grab the chart. Here we go. It starts in the Old Testament, way on the left-hand side, where God gives 613 laws in the Old Testament to keep people moving in the right direction. A system of animal sacrifice was instituted to cover the sins of the people and to keep the relationship open between a holy God and sinful man. Then you'll notice there's an arrow coming down right over that left-hand side, Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes to earth and dies on a cross. That's why you see the symbol of the cross there. He comes to pay the penalty of sin once and for all. This ushered in a period of history that we are still living in today. It's kind of the underscore there. It's the age of grace. Jesus came and died on a cross, but came back to life again through the power of the resurrection. That's why you see the little symbol of the tomb with the stone rolled away. Jesus appeared to hundreds of people, live and in the flesh, and then he went back up to heaven. That's the next arrow that goes up. But the cool thing is he didn't just leave and leave us alone, but instead he sent something down. That's the next arrow. He sent the Holy Spirit at a place called Pentecost. We talked about that in the simple series, and he ushered in the age of the church. We are living in the age of the church, all right? It's a movement of people who are living out the mission of Jesus. That's where we find ourselves right now in October 2011. And this is the big question that a lot of people are asking. So what's next? What's going to happen? I mean, Jesus got us all the way through and we're in the church age. What's going to happen next? When's the date? Just pick the date and tell me when to be ready. And I'm going to get everything all lined up and it's going to be awesome. Okay. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 36, about what's coming next. The Bible says, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay, let me use four years of Bible college, some seminary, my understanding of Greek and Hebrew, the original languages. Let me do my best to try and uncloud this very confusing language and interpret this confusing ancient text. Okay, this is what the words no one knows means in English. Okay, are you ready for it? It means this. No one knows. Can I get any clearer than that? No one knows. There's no mathematical equation. In fact, I think God's got a sense of humor. If you pick a certain date and that's the one, I think he'll move it just to drive you crazy. Because scripture says nobody knows. Okay, so this is what I'm going to say to the date pickers. Those of you that are here that are picking dates, those of you that are outside of here that are picking dates, this is what I want to say to you. Knock it off, okay? Stop doing it because it's not biblical Listen to Jesus and stop freaking everybody out. This is what you should do. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you should do with date pickers. Ignore them. Just ignore them. Your Bible gives you permission to do that. I still remember in 1988, I was a Bible college student, and into every mailbox in the entire nation of Canada, a little book came. And the title of the book was 88 Reasons Why the Lord Jesus Christ Will Return in 1988. 
That was the title of the book. It should have been called A Waste of Trees because the only thing that book was good for was recycling, all right? Because we got through 1988. We got through May 21st. Some of you don't know this, but the same group of people who said the world was ending in May 21st also said that the world was going to end last weekend. How'd that work for you, right? No one knows the time or the place. The Bible goes on in the same chapter and says this, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Here's the tragedy of those verses. These two people worked together, shared life together. One of them knew and one of them missed out. I just wonder, was it because the one who knew was not bold enough to share with the one who didn't? The Bible says just two ladies sharing life together, sharing work together. One of them knows, the other one doesn't. One of them goes, the other one doesn't. My question is, when you walk into your office tomorrow, when you walk into your workplace and you look at the cubicles around you where God has providentially placed people, have you done your part in sharing with them the story that will allow them to be a part of the greatest moment of human history. What they do with it, that's up to them. But have you done your part in making sure they don't get left behind? We spent weeks talking about boldness. That's what it's all about right there. Before I start talking about the chart, I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about the arrows. Because here's what I need you to know, okay? The Bible is very clear that each one of the arrows on the chart is a biblical event, okay? They are going to happen. Based on God's track record and his perfect record when it comes to prophecy, all of the arrows are going to happen. Here's what you need to know. The arrows are real. The order is actually up for debate and up to some level of interpretation, okay? I've laid out a very conservative view of eschatology here, okay? It's got a little dispensationalism in there. I mean, it's just got all kinds of stuff wrapped in there. You may not agree with the order, and here's what I need you to know. It's okay. You can disagree with the order. Now, if you want to get nasty about it and you write me an email, I want to remind you of the rules around here at Christ the King. If you haven't got the courage to sign it, I don't have the time to read it, okay? So you can send me an email. It's all good. You can, you know, we can debate and go back and forth and talk about this. Here's what I need you to be reminded of before we even start here. The arrows are going to happen in what order they're going to happen is up to some level of interpretation from scripture. I'm just kind of laying down what I think. Okay. All right. So Jesus says the church age that we are living in right now is going to come to an end with an amazing event. People are going to be out just doing their thing, living life, and then the followers of Christ are going to be gone. They're going to disappear, okay? There's a word for this occurrence that's not in Scripture. You won't find it anywhere. The word is rapture, but I put it on your chart anyway. You can see it right there, okay? The church is going to be raptured. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, this is supposed to be good news. This should actually build anticipation for us. And this is what you need to know. There's a day coming. We have no idea when it's going to be. But when it gets here, there'll be no mistaking it because the people of God are going to be taken out of this world and we'll have an opportunity to meet our Savior face to face. That is very good news. Now the question is, where are we going? And here's the answer. We're going to a wedding. We're leaving here and going to a wedding. Scripture calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19 says this. It says, hallelujah, which just means praise God, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's what Pastor Derek talked about last week. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Jesus picks her wardrobe. That's going to become very important in the next couple of moments. Then the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. A couple of Saturday nights ago, I got to go to a wedding. In fact, the newlyweds who I married a couple of weeks ago are actually here in this service. And I promise I will not embarrass them. It was a beautiful wedding. It was absolutely gorgeous. I was so honored to be a part of it. But one of my favorite moments in all the weddings that I've ever done, I was actually watching this happen again a couple Saturdays ago. My favorite moment is when the bridegroom actually sees his future wife at the end of the aisle for the first time in the ceremony. His face just goes boom. It's a, it's a combination of joy and happiness and shock and fear, okay? Now, it's not bad fear. It's this kind of fear. It's the kind of fear that says this. What is she doing marrying someone like me? That's the fear. That will not be there on the day when Jesus sees his bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. There's no fear. His bride, the church, is coming to him and he has nothing but love and joy at her arrival. I also love the moment when the groom gets to step around his soon-to-be father-in-law and he actually takes his wife by the hand for the first time. It's like we made it. We got here. It was so worth everything because you're finally here with me. The Bible says that there'll be nothing but love and joy at the arrival of Jesus' bride. And she wears white, not because she deserves to, but because Jesus has washed her as white as snow in forgiveness and grace. I mean, I want you to think about this for just a little bit, okay? We spend normally, traditionally, about a year getting ready for a wedding. Jesus has been planning this wedding for 2,000 years. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. The rapture ushers in two different happenings, one in heaven, one on earth. On earth, a time begins known as the tribulation. And yeah, it's bad, just so you know, okay? Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, Revelation 7, 14. Talk about a time that starts off okay, but it ends very bad. 
All right? Let me remind you about my chart one more time before we dive into this. Lots of people love to argue that the rapture arrow should actually move. Some people put it at the beginning of the tribulation. Some people put it in the middle of the tribulation. Some people put it at the end of the tribulation. Okay? I have decided, this is just my personal opinion, to put the, tribu- to put the rapture arrow at the beginning of the tribulation for two reasons. Number one, I can back it up biblically. And number two, I'm a coward. All right? 11.45, are you with me at all? All right? I, mean, I just would rather not go through it, right? I'm avoiding to pain like every other human being, right? And I also believe the Bible teaches that that's where it's going to happen. Now, it's up for debate. My encouragement to you is this. Go ahead, study your Bible. You can put the arrow anywhere you want to as long as you understand the arrows are going to happen, okay? But it's not an argument worth happening or worth having at this particular point. The tribulation, according to Scripture, is a period of seven years that includes a character the Bible calls the Antichrist. Okay, he's bad. He's the anti-Jesus. For all the good Jesus is, the Antichrist is not. Hence his name, Antichrist. And the Bible says he's going to come here. He's going to make promises. He's going to be a government figure. He's going to lie to people. And the result of it will be tribulation. Some of you are like, that sounds bad. It's going to be. All right? That's all I'm going to say about the Antichrist, because if I say any more, people just start getting really, really weird. And they start watching their televisions and going, oh, I think that might be him. <laughs> Two o'clock in the afternoon, it's not a him, it's a her. Ah, yeah, right there, okay? So we're not going there. All we're going to say is this. There is an Antichrist who will make himself known in the tribulation and will not be good. All right? While that is happening down here on earth, something's happening in heaven for the followers of Jesus. It's called the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema reward seat, okay? Now, don't freak out because this is where everybody gets kind of strange. Some of you have a twisted view of judgment and you kind of view it this way, that Jesus is going to sit down at a desk and he's going to show you a movie of every bad thing you ever did in your life, you know? He's going to pick up a remote. He's going to play a black and white film of the time that your mother caught you doing that thing that you weren't supposed to be doing. And then he's going to look at you and say, so can you explain that to me, young man? What do you have to say for yourself, young lady? Can you, let's watch it again, right? That's your view of judgment, all right? That's not an accurate reflection. Okay, I want to make sure we get this. The judgment seat of Christ is a place where you are not judged for your sin. Because if you know Jesus, your Bible says your sin is gone, erased, forgiven, not to be brought up again. It's actually gone. Jesus paid for your sin. That means it's gone. Now be very careful about your response because some people are just like, whoa, well, if my sin is gone, I can do whatever I want to because then all I got to do is come and confess it again. It's going to be great. Why would we ever cheapen the price that God paid by turning the grace that he's given us into a license to go and do whatever it is that we would want to? That makes no sense. Paul, the apostle Paul actually asked this question. He says, after he has finished saying, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, a little bit later on, he says this, should we sin more so that grace can abound? And then he uses a little phrase, meganoita, which means may it never be. Let me put it to you in modern English. The apostle Paul would say, so you're going to take the grace that God has given you, the amazing grace that he used, 
that he gave in, in, in allowing his body to be broken and his blood to be spilled, you're going to allow that, that price to be so cheap and that you can go do whatever you want to? Paul would say this, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That's what you're going to do with the sacrifice of God. Well, if your sin is gone, what are you being judged and rewarded on at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, I believe we're going to be judged on our motives and on our stewardship. I think we're going to be judged on the how and the why of how you lived the life that God gave you. And because we want to make sure we're ready for this, let's do a little motive test right now. Okay, just a little thing. I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions. And let's just check our motives right now because we're going to be answering for them a little bit later on. Question number one, why are you here Did you come to worship God in spirit and in truth, or did you come to manage your image? Because let's face it, good people should go to church, and it's just a wise strategic business move to be interacting with good people, right? So do we come for Jesus, or do we come for us? Question number two, do you want to obey God? Or do you just come to get enough information so you can negotiate your sin with him? Ouch. Do you see your Bible as a command and a gift or a series of suggestions and a burden that you get to drag around with you for the rest of your life? Are we giving our best to Jesus or do we just serve him the leftovers on Sunday morning because it's all we got left and it makes us feel better? Stewardship is about giving God our best, our time, our talents, and our treasure. And 1 Corinthians says this, that we should be very, very careful how we go about building our lives because when trials, tribulations, and tests come, what we have been building is actually going to be revealed for what it is. The Bible says that as believers, we're going to answer for our motives. So here's the question. I know a lot of us are doing the right things. The question is, are we doing it for the right reason? Are we doing this because God wants us to and we want to or because we're trying to fulfill some spiritual checklist that we created in our brain a long, long time ago? I love what comes next. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 says this, May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. After the tribulation, Jesus is coming back and those who have been raptured are actually coming back with him. It's called the second coming. Okay, we're going to move on the chart a little bit over. It's called the second coming. And the second coming ushers in a period called the millennial kingdom. All right, Revelation 20 describes a thousand year period. As horrible as the tribulation was, the millennium will be awesome. Creation is going to be delivered, which means Jesus is going to come back and put everything back the way it was before sin completely messed it up. Israel is going to be restored to its rightful place as God's chosen people. And this is the best part to me. At the beginning of the millennium, a battle is going to happen. You've seen it in movie titles. You've seen it on TV shows. It's called Armageddon, okay? I don't have time to describe it, but I'm going to give you the best part. It's Jesus versus evil, and Jesus wins. That's the best part of it, okay? Now, I want you to know something, okay? The Jesus that wins is not bathrobe-wearing, feathered hair, love me and I'll give you a lollipop Jesus, okay? That's not the Jesus who wins and defeats the enemy at Armageddon. Now, Jesus of Revelation 19 is the one who is victorious. 
I never get tired of reading these words. I'm going to describe them to you again. Here it comes. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Where have you heard that before? Jesus picks the dress coat, all right? Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'll tell you what, if you're going to go into the battle of the ages, Jesus versus evil, go with that guy. Pick that side. The Bible says after the battle of Armageddon, Satan is bound for a thousand years and order is restored. I want a front row seat when that happens. When Jesus chains up the enemy of our souls, the author of all the garbage in the world, and throws him in a pit for a thousand years. I don't know about you. I want to be front center, cheering, going, bind him up, throw him down. That would be awesome for me. At the end of a thousand years, Revelation 20 verse 7 says that Satan is loosed and Jesus deals with him once and for all. Scripture says Satan is defeated and he, the Antichrist, and another guy known as the false prophet are all thrown into a lake of fire where they will stay forever and ever and ever and ever Amen. That's what Scripture says. We talked about the reward judgment of believers. And that's a good judgment. That's one that my prayer would be as a church we all aspire to be a part of. But there's another one. Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 describes what's known as the great white throne judgment. All the people of history gather before the throne and the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, opens what is known as the book of life. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you have the promise of an eternity with God forever. Now let's make sure we've got a good picture of eternity because some of our pictures are a little bit twisted. Let's be honest. I mean, some of us think eternity, according to what we see on television, is we're all going to get a little chubby. They're going to give us a diaper and a harp, and we're going to float on top of a cloud and play bad music for a long time. Doesn't that sound exciting to you? You know, bring. That's not eternity. I want you to imagine a time in your life when all of your questions are answered. And you have perfect peace because God explained everything to you. Why this happened? Why that happened? How many people were touched because of this tragedy that came into your life? I want you to think about a time when there's no more tears, no more sickness, no more layoffs, no more downsizing, no more wayward children, no more cancer. It's just, that's just all gone. 
And all that's left is you and complete and total acceptance because there's no barriers between you and your creator. And everything you've ever wanted or dreamed of is available to you because that's just the beginning of how much God loves you. I'd sign up for a long period of that. That sounds good to me. That sounds good to me. The Bible says if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life that you're saved eternally and that's what's waiting for you. But it also says something else. It says if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, that's not your promise. Now this is where it gets really, really tough for people. I've watched it happen all weekend long because the Bible talks about hell. I spent a chunk of the week before I went on vacation asking myself the question whether or not I actually had the courage and the guts to speak as boldly about hell as Jesus did. Because I'll, be tell, I'll tell you something. I've listened to some of my messages from eight or nine years ago when I took over as the senior pastor here, and I'll tell you something about those messages. Most of them were about keeping people happy. Didn't want to offend anybody, didn't want to make anybody uncomfortable. Just so you're very clear, and so I can be very clear, I'm speaking to myself now, that is no longer the case at Christ the King Church. This is not about making you happy or making me happy. This is about making Jesus happy. Can I get an amen? amen. And Jesus actually speaks very, very boldly about a place called hell, which prompts a question right away that I hear all of the time. How can a loving God send people to hell? Here's the answer. God doesn't send people to hell. People pick it. And there's another option. There's another option. Here's just a few things I know for sure. Hell is real. Hell is hot. Forever is a long time. And Jesus died so you didn't have to go there. It's what I know to be true. For the Bible tells me so. So here's what we've got to figure out today. We've got to figure out why this is scary. You know why it's scary? Because it is. That's why. But here's the cool thing that I think people need to know and recognize. You get to choose your judgment. You know that? You get to choose your judgment. And I can tell you which one Jesus wants you to pick. Jesus wants you to pick the reward of judgment. He died so you could actually have access to that judgment. That's the one. If he was here right now, he would say, pick that. Choose that one. Live your life so you can go to that one. You know, I have a dream as a church. I have a dream as a church that when we get to heaven and it's time for the judgment seat of Christ, that when he gets to this crazy group of people known as Christ the King Church in Bellingham, Washington, my hope, prayer, and dream is that Jesus has to call a time out. So, okay, everybody's going to have to wait. Y'all going to have to take a step back, just relax for a little while, because I've got to deal with these people from Bellingham, and they're just kind of a different sort, because they actually believed everything that I ever told them, and this is going to take a while. So everybody else just relax, because they're going to get the reward that they've been waiting for their whole life, and we're going to be here for a while. Doesn't that sound incredible? If God had to call a time out with us, because we so passionately chose this judgment as opposed to the other one. Pick the reward seat so that you don't have to stand in line at the great white throne judgment where people will be judged 
for their sin. All right. Boy, it gets quiet in here when we talk about this stuff. You guys all right? You, you can breathe out now, all right? All right. Let's take some conclusions as we get ready to wrap up. You've heard some of these before. I want to keep bringing them back to you throughout the series. Eschatology without Jesus is information without transformation. I mean, without Jesus, this is just arrows and arguments. It's information and not transformation. You know, I want you to understand something. I spent years in Bible college, and at night, we would actually sit down with our Bibles and debate this stuff. You know what I wish? I wish I could have all that time back. I wish I could have all that time back and that we would have taken that time to focus on loving each other and getting to know each other and focusing on the fact that Jesus said he's coming back and we're just going to leave that with him. Number two, second conclusion, that no one knows the time, so we need to be watchful and ready. I mean, it could be tomorrow, it could be next week, it could be three, four decades from now. We have absolutely no idea. But in the meantime, we are called to steward our life with the very, very right motives that God has called us to. Conclusion number three, we get to choose our judgment. Every human being that's ever lived, is living now, or will ever live, is going to face Jesus Christ in one of two ways. We're either going to face him in his justice, and God is a just God. That's what actually makes him loving. We're either going to face him in his justice, or we're going to face him in his grace. My prayer is that you choose to face him in his grace. The Bible says one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. My prayer is that when we come around the end of the aisle and Jesus the bridegroom makes eye contact with us, that we are able to fall on our knees in that moment and say, we chose grace. We chose grace. And here's the last one. I'm going to say it again. At the end of it all, Jesus wins and the bride wears white. And that's the end of the story. Um, this is not original with me. Can't claim it. If you want to give credit to somebody, you need to give it to a wonderful man named Dr. Orville Swenson. Dr. Swenson was my eschatology professor at Briarcrest when I went to school there. We spent pretty much four years working through all of the stuff that went into this. And I will never forget the last class that I spent in the God and Revelation class that I took with Dr. Swenson because it was for pastoral majors, guys who were moving in a certain direction. And he took out all of his notes and he held out the big chart that we'd spent years working through. And this is what he said to us. Young men, all you really need to know is two things. In the end, Jesus wins and the bride wears white. You pastor your churches that way. The cool thing about Dr. Swenson is a couple years ago, he actually died and went home to be with Jesus. And he doesn't give a flying rip about any of this stuff right now. He doesn't care because he's already home. My prayer is that we will live like it's tomorrow, that we will not live in fear, but that we will live in a genuine anticipation that everything Jesus said was going to happen is going to happen at some point. Let's love him and trust him 
as we walk through this season together.